whispers at Lourdes are young professionals heeding our Lord's call to sanctify the secular and evangelize the world. One of our overarching goals is to not only show that the Catholic way of understanding reality and living life is coherent and life-giving, but to give young professionals a better idea of how to live the Catholic vision for a holy, lay, secular life. In doing so, we aspire to offer an evening of substance and community that corresponds to the expectations of young professionals living in the Twin Cities. Tonight's speaker is Father Joseph Carolla. Father Joseph Carolla, SJ, was born in Houston, Texas, and ordained there after joining New Orleans province of the Society of Jesus. He earned his bachelor's degree at St. Louis University in Missouri, and holds a Master's of Divinity from the Weston School of Theology in Boston, a license in Patristic Theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, and a Doctorate in Theology and Patristic Science from the Patristic Institute Augustinianum in Rome. Augustinianum. He was the longtime chaplain of the University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies program in Rome, and currently serves on the faculty of the same Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, Italy. Please join me in welcoming Father Joseph Carolla. Thank you, it's a joy to be with you all. I see many familiar faces here uh, in this uh, hall this, this evening. Many of you were in Rome during my tenure as chaplain at Bernardi at the Catholic Studies House uh, on the Lungo Tevere, just across from the uh, Secretary of the Navy there in Rome. Um, I was chaplain there for 21 semesters, and so over 600 of you, I think, more or less, passed through the house. And so it's good to see some of you here this evening. Also, this evening reminds me very much of my experience at the Catholic Studies House. This is like a Wednesday night for those of you who were there. Uh, we would gather for adoration and vespers. Afterwards, we had mass, and we would go into the salotto for a conversation, uh, what usually an invited guest. Um, I was the one welcoming the guest. I wasn't the guest in those days. And, uh, and the guests typically had red fascias, not black fascias. <laughs> and then afterwards, we'd have something to eat. So this evening, in some ways, is kind of Bernardi on steroids. <laughs> but, uh, good, good to see that this spirit still lives here. Uh, Isaac, who was uh, with me a good number of years ago there at Bernardi, in fact, his sister Catherine was also with us, and his brother Elliot. Um, and so I was, I was very happy to receive this invitation from Isaac and that it did work out that my visit to St. Paul this year uh, coincided with a second Thursday in the month. And Isaac asked me to speak on vocation, but I don't want to tell you my vocation story. That is my vocation to the priesthood story. Many of you who were at Bernardi would have heard that in some form or another over the years. But I do want to talk about vocation and, and my own particular vocation, um, but a different element of it. And it's my Roman vocation. And I think that this will be more applicable to your own experiences. Because how is it that I ended up in Rome? That's a question that I often get. 
And I think that as I look back on how I got there, I really see the Lord's providence leading me to a certain place and a certain work and preparing me for it in a way that I could never have imagined, but even more importantly, my own religious superiors could not have imagined. And so that the Lord was working all along uh, without really any of us being mindful of exactly what he was preparing me for. I, having said all of that, though, I knew about the Gregorian University ever since I was 14 years old. And when I was 14, I remember thinking, one day I want to go to that school and study. The reason I knew about it is that I went to a Jesuit high school in Houston, Strake Jesuit College Preparatory. And I showed up there as a young 14-year-old, and many of the Jesuits in the school had actually studied in Rome. And that's what made them stand out for me, was that I thought, well, the diocesan clergy, they go down to St. Mary's on Memorial Drive, but the Jesuits, they go to Rome. Now, I've since learned that fewer Jesuits go to Rome than I imagined, and a lot more diocesan clergy actually do go to Rome. There's a good number in this room who have, in fact, been at Rome and studied or made retreats or done various things. Um, so I knew about the Gregorian when I was 14. I entered the order, and uh, when I was teaching at our high school in Houston, where I had been a boy, I began to have this deep desire to work in the formation of the clergy. And where did this come from? Well, it, it came from my experience with the boys in the school, so and my experience in my father's home parish. I had been in the order six years. I had gone to Sunday Mass all those six years, but always either in the Jesuit house, a formation, or in a Jesuit parish. But I didn't really have much exposure to diocesan parishes during those six years. My father's home parish was one of these kind of teaching parishes, a very fine pastor, so the newly ordained would be sent to be with him, and he was there to train them. So we got the good, the bad, and the ugly all in that parish. And I could see the great merits of, of these men's formation, but I also saw the deficits and could compare it really in some ways to my own formation in this society. And so for three years, every Sunday, I would be there with my father at seven in the morning for the Sunday Mass and had this experience of, of the new young clergy. And as I say, both the very good and the positive things, but also the, the needs, the lacks that I, the lack that I saw that was there, uh, my own experience of it. As a, as a young fellow myself, I, wasn't, I was actually either slightly younger or the very age of, of these fellows who were saying mass then. So there was that. And then the other thing was my students. My students would come up to me, and I was a mister then, and they would say, Mr. Carolla, uh, Father so-and-so in my parish just said this yesterday, or, you know, yesterday on Sunday at mass. Is this true? Is that correct? Uh, you know, they'd have these questions, and they'd come up to me. And I began to think about what is the church for these fellows and for most people. And no matter what your ecclesiology is, in other words, whatever your theology of the church may be, the truth of the matter is for the vast majority of Catholics, the church is father who lives down the street in the rectory, and the church teaches whatever father just preached last Sunday from the pulpit. I mean, more or less, that's most people, most Catholics' vision of the church, father in the rectory and whatever he just preached last Sunday. And so I began to realize, wow, it's really important to form the diocesan clergy well, because the diocesan clergy are the ones who are primarily in all of the parishes. And so most people's encounter of the Catholic Church is going to be through a diocesan priest, not, not necessarily through a religious. So that desire to help form good diocesan priests took root when I was teaching in Houston. And then I went from there to my theology. I was set up to Cambridge, Massachusetts, to the Western School of Theology. 
And there I fell in love with the church fathers. Uh, Father Brian Daly, who's now in Notre Dame University, was my professor, and I also lived in the same Jesuit house with him, and he really inspired me. So I grew in love of the fathers, in particular St. Augustine, and so here was a, something I would want to teach, want, something I wanted to know more about, a desire to work in the formation of the clergy, and I was promised that after those three years in Boston, I could go to Rome to do a license. Now, what happened was, though, I was never really directly promised that. Um, there was another Jesuit at the same time who wanted to go to Spain when I wanted to go to Rome to begin theology. But neither of us was allowed to go to Spain or Rome to begin our theology. But the formation assistant, the priest in charge of formation, promised the other fellow explicitly that he could go to Spain, but he never told me that I could go to Rome directly. That is, he never said me to this to me orally. But he wrote it in a letter, and I remember when I got it in the letter, I was kind of surprised. Oh, it says that I'll be going to Rome after this, but I never really remember having that been confirmed from this priest. And shortly after he wrote the letter, unfortunately, God rest, and he dropped dead. And so in my file is a letter saying that, you know, it was his intention to send me to Rome. And uh, so when the, the new provincial took over and he saw this in the file, he wanted to respect everything that Father was intending. And so I went to Rome um, to begin my license. And so I was there as a young deacon. Uh, it was a marvelous time in Rome uh, my, uh, as a deacon in the first year as a priest. I served on two occasions, well, three occasions as Saint, of Pope St. John Paul II's deacon, uh, twice in the Basilica for the Epiphany and for the Easter Vigil, and then once in his private chapel. Uh, that just before coming home to the ordained priest, I saw Pope St. John Paul II in his private chapel, and I asked him if he would uh, pray for me and, and bless me in anticipation of my sacerdotal ordination. And about a month before that, I had seen Mother Teresa, and I asked her as well if she would pray for my ordination. The mother looked at me, and she went, what's the date? And I told her, and she stopped, and she thought. And I said, this woman's going to come to my ordination. <laughs> I was really, she, I mean, she really gave me the impression. She was like, okay, where am I going to be? What's my calendar? And then afterwards, she said, okay, well, that's, you know, I will pray for you, you know, so... Um, to have blessed the St. Mother Teresa and St. John Paul II praying for my priesthood meant a great deal to me. Uh, while I was there, I began to see that the needs at the Gregorian University were in fact quite great. The, the, the faculty were getting older, they were dying, or they, they were retiring, and there weren't a lot of young Jesuits coming up behind them. The other thing that I discovered is that I had five of the six languages of the university at that point because the one thing I was trained to do in the order was to be a high school foreign language teacher. So I had five of the six languages. I had fallen in love with the church fathers, was doing a license in the fathers, and um, was a pretty good teacher. And so I thought, wow, I could teach here and train seminarians. And the Jesuits, we always kind of think as globally as possible. Ignatius always looked for the greater good, the more universal good. And so what Ignatius would say is, okay, I could be a really good priest in a parish, and then I could do great good for that parish. Or I could be uh, a good professor in a local seminary and do good for all of the clergy through that seminary for that archdiocese or diocese. Or I could teach in Rome, and then I could have uh, access really to all the dioceses of the entire world and teach their seminarians and their formators who would then have that 
uh, influence more broadly across the world. So there's multiplying effects. Wherever the more universal good was, that was where the greater good was, and that was what St. Ignatius would always have chosen. And so in my case, that really was Rome, and it was the Gregorian. So I had all of this in place, and a superior came to visit. Now, the superior came to visit, had a new job that was not exactly what the previous guy had had. The previous guy had just dropped dead. And so this fellow was put in his place as a formation assistant. He was a very dear man, but not a particularly competent man. And so the provincial said to him and said to all of us scholastics, you will not make a manifestation of conscience to Father Rising. He will simply be a kind of prefect of studies to make sure your studies are going well. The manifestation you will make to me. And he made it very, very clear. Okay, fine. Well, Father Rising comes to Rome to visit me as a deacon. And the first thing he does is he hands me a letter, the most official letter I'd ever received in the order, saying, given that I cannot come to Rome to receive your manifestation, Father Rising will, in this case, this one case, receive your manifestation of conscience. And he made me read the letter before that conference began. And I read it, and I'm like, okay. And then he said, is there anything you want to say? That's how he began. And I said, well, in fact, yes. <laughs> I said, I believe that the Holy Spirit is calling me to do this work, to get a doctorate in theology, and to teach, ideally, here at the Gregorian University in the formation of the clergy. And he was very open to this. And then we met for five hours, sprout out over three different appointments, and in the meantime, he started going to the dean of the university, and he went to my professors. He's like, what are the names of your professors? I like, thinking, First of all, it's like, you don't speak Italian, so I don't know who to send you to. <laughs> but there was an Englishman, and I said, well, you could go to him. I'm studying Newman with him. So he went to go see him. I hadn't even ever spoken to this professor privately, but my superior was going to make an appointment with him. So he started opening up all of these doors. And then he comes back, and he says, great, you know, the, the fifth hour, the last meeting, and he said, I've talked about this one and this one, and this is great. And I was thinking, I was thinking wow, this is a remarkable. I had no idea this was going to happen. And, uh, and then he said, when I get back, I'm just going to tell Father Provincial, I'm just going to give him the meat and potatoes. You may want to write a letter. And I thought, oh, you better believe I'm going to write a letter. <laughs> I don't know what that meat and potatoes is going to sound like. And I want to make sure that I'm able to really express what, you know, what I've been thinking and how the Lord's calling me. So that's, that's what I did. This was before the days of email. Thanks be to God, because Father flies back to the United States. He sees Father Provencial. Father Provencial says, you talked to whom? You said what? You promised what? You write to Father Carolla, or a deacon Carolla at that point, immediately, and you tell him he is not to pursue this. He's to return to the United States. He will teach in our high schools for at least five years. He will do his tertianship, and then we might think about letting him do a doctor. Okay, so that's all going on in New Orleans, and I'm back in Rome, and I write a five-page, single-space, ten-point letter <laughs> describing my entire vocation that's leading me to this work in Rome. And so I send my letter, and Father, the assistant, the, the assistant formation, his letter is coming, telling me everything the provincial said, and they're crossing each other over the Atlantic. And this is why it's so good that email didn't exist, because the minute Father got back, he could have shot off an email to me, it would have been right at me, and then that would have been it. I could never have written my letter. But because of this 10-day delay of letters, my letter's going there as this letter's coming to me. Well, needless to say, when I opened it, I was really very saddened. And I thought, oh, well, I really feel the Lord's calling me to this, but apparently not. Well, in the meantime, the provincial gets my letter, 
And then 10 days later, I get a letter from, another letter from the provincials, about 20 days are passing now. And the letter from the provincial was much more calmed down. He was like, okay, Father, two years in the high schools, and then we can talk about this. Um, and so then the following year, I had to finish the license. The provincial came to see me, and he said, I apologize for what happened. I, I, I commissioned Father um, Rising to receive your manifestation, not to mission you for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I said, well, that's okay. And um, so every, but everything had opened up. And people in Rome were presuming that I was about to be destined for the work at the Gregorian. And uh, I was being sent to Florida to teach at our high school in Tampa, which, by the way, if you haven't checked out the Jesuit high school in Tampa, Florida, their web page, they've built a beautiful chapel. Duncan Stroik just finished it a year ago. It was dedicated August 7th. The remarkable, remarkably good things going on at Jesuit high school in Tampa. So I taught there in the 90s. I went, I went there then to teach. I remember at the time, as I, was, as I was sitting in the North American College Chapel for a musical concert one evening in May, and they were singing the Beale Ave Maria, which is the Angelus. And I was really torn, because you know, you can understand something intellectually, like, okay, I know I need to do that, I know I'm gonna do that, but your heart doesn't really always follow as quickly behind your head. So you know you're gonna do something, but your heart's just not there yet. And it was, my heart was really torn because I truly believed that God was calling me to do, in fact, the very thing that I am doing right now, which was to have gotten the doctorate, to work in the formation of the clergy, to teach church fathers, etc., and so on. And yet here was my superior calling me away. And we're told as Jesuits to hear the voice of Christ and the voice of our superior. So I was torn. I'm listening to the Beale Ave Maria, which is the Angelus. And then suddenly it really, the Lord put on my heart. He helped me understand. When the angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived, but before conceiving, when the angel declares to her, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace, we're told that Mary was deeply troubled and did not understand what this greeting meant. She was deeply troubled and did not understand what the greeting meant. And then the angel has to go on to explain, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. And, and then Mary said yes, and the Word becomes incarnate. And the Lord was saying to me, I don't need for you to understand everything right now. I just need for you to be docile, to be obedient to my word, so that through, my, through, so that through your priesthood, my word can become incarnate in the lives of those to whom I am sending you. I just need you to trust in your obedience to my word, that my word then through your priesthood will become incarnate in those to whom I'm sending you. You don't have to have this all figured out intellectually. Just trust. And so I did. In that very moment, I started praying for the people of Tampa, Florida, whom I would meet, whom I would serve, whom I would be the Lord's priestly instrument in their lives for them. So I started praying for them, and I went. Um, during that time, uh, I, that, at the, towards the end of the first year, as I was told, I would be there perhaps only two years and could return to my studies. That wasn't definite. And at the end of the first year, the president of the school, Father Bradley, called me in and asked me to take over the National Forensic League, the debate team. Well, I'd never done debate in high school, and it was never appealing to me. And I used to see all the debaters every weekend cutting out newspaper clippings and putting them all together, and then the coaches driving them all over the South for these weekend events. And I just thought, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and I said to Father Bradley, but Father, if I do that, I won't be able to go for Sunday supply at the Christ the King where I go every Sunday. And he went, 
Father, you were missioned to Jesuit High School, not Christ the King. I thought, well, that's true. You're right. Um, and then I said, well, but look, what the National Forensic League needs is continuity. They keep having new directors every year. And I said, I don't, hopefully I will not be here after next year. I'll be returning to my studies. And he looked at me and he said, not if I have anything to do with it. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm really glad you have nothing to do with it. <laughs> I didn't say that. Now, luckily, he spared me, and he didn't make me the National Forensic League director. He spared me that role. So that summer, the father, I'm teaching Spanish to our novices in, in this Acadian town of Grancato, Louisiana. I get called to New Orleans, so I drive over to New Orleans. And I'm there, and Father Provincial sees me, and he lets me talk for an hour and a half to explain my vocation to this call of working the formation of the clergy, et cetera, and so on. I talked for an hour and a half, and at the end of it, he just looked at me and he said, they're going to make an official request for you from Rome this autumn, and I am going to respond affirmatively. And I thought, well, then why did you let me talk for an hour and a half? <laughs> you could have just told me that when I walked in the door, and that would have made things so much easier. Um, and so I returned to the Jesuit high school and taught one more year, about to return to Rome to then continue with my studies, the doctorate, with the destination of staying in Rome. That, in the meantime, that same year, the father president of the high school where I was, the one who was going to impede my return to Rome to doctoral studies, et cetera, and so on, he was named the new provincial. But he didn't take office until that summer. And so we both left the high school at the same time. I left to go to Rome to continue my studies because the then Father Provincial missioned me there, and then the delegate and the Father General had actually called me. And in the meantime, this other priest then went to New Orleans to become the Provincial. And had that happened one year before, I simply wouldn't be in Rome, and I would not know any of you, actually, um, as a result of that. So this story I share with you just to say that as I looked back on my, my formation, nobody was preparing me explicitly for this work. Nobody said, we're going to have you know, Mr. Carolla study languages, do theology, do this, do this, do this, so that he will be prepared to do this work at the Gregorian University. Nobody thought in those terms. In fact, I had wanted to study music, and had asked to study music right out of the novitiate, and I was told, musicians don't make good priests, you will study modern foreign languages. And so that was, <laughs> uh, and that was a long story because there was a Jesuit musician from my province who had studied at Juilliard who was very problematic, and he was living in an apartment in New York, and he had two Doberman pinchers, and they had just blasted him out of that apartment and dragged him back kicking to New Orleans. And right at that time, I'm writing saying, I think I should study music. <laughs> so... That didn't go anywhere. So I was, it was told languages. And I was like, all right, fine. Then I'm going to do that to the best of my ability. But you're going to have to send me to these countries so I can learn them. And they did. OK, but that was not for what I'm doing now. That was for something else. So many different pieces of this vocation story were our threads that came together only once I got to Rome. And then I began to see, well, this is how the Lord so often works, is that He's preparing us for a work in a way that we can't even begin to understand or imagine early on, but they're all kind of little threads that are coming together, and then at a certain point, you see the, the ensemble of, of, of all of these elements, and then you recognize, yeah, this is what the Lord in the end has always been preparing me for, and, and this is my vocation. Okay, and just to conclude this, and if you do have a question or two, I'd be happy to answer it if there's enough time, but um, I am in Rome, 
And Rome is obviously a holy and special place, and the heart of the church. And I was chaplain for many years for the, the Bernardi campus in Rome. And I often went on many pilgrimages with the students. Those were some of the best times, really. And I recently, others have told me that those were key moments in their own lives and the conversations, the, the kind of informal interaction throughout a day. And I've always known that, that the pilgrimage is really important because when we're on a pilgrimage, we're on a journey and we're much more open than when we're not, uh, when we're home and we're in our regular setting. And hence the importance of pilgrimage, the importance of going somewhere to a shrine, to, to be open to what the Lord would um, have us uh, receive. I, I find that the travel does that. It just opens us up. But it opens us up to hear more clearly God's call. And uh, so perhaps, too, in, in a certain, you know, if you're in your own discernment, uh, to go to a shrine, to go somewhere, uh, to let that be part of the journey, and to ask the Lord. Uh, guidance to help him, ask him to help you to understand his will or the intercession of the saints where you're going. I think it's very, a very important uh, element of, of any discernment um, because those are the moments I think when we are most open, when we're outside of what is normal and regular and when we have a little distance and we can look back then on our lives and see them from a, a new perspective. So, are there any questions or observations or violent reactions, <laughs> whatever there might be. Yes? How about the formation of a, a laity work? Like if, if they're, they're feeling the call into teaching uh, as a layman? So if you're feeling the call to teach, well, that's a good, yes. Like, like in the diocese level. Okay. Well, first of all, that would also mean preparation. So it means the proper formation academically if you're hoping to teach at that level. And so where do your interests lie? That'll be an important question. Where are your gifts and where are your talents? What could you do best? Um, and then to recognize where are the needs as well. So it's not just simply what I'm capable of doing and may want to do, but where are the particular needs? So like in my case, I had all of these talents and abilities and desires, but I also, when I got to Rome, I saw these, the immense needs at the university as that faculty was aging. And the two went hand in hand. The other thing, oh, there was another element I left out, which I think will help with this, is that during that first year when I was in Tampa, there was a general congregation of the Jesuit order. The whole order had come together, the Father's Provincial. And my Father Provincial had participated in it. And at that meeting, the Worldwide Society of Jesus said, we must identify young Jesuits who can come and teach at our institutions in Rome. And so my father provincial had heard me for two or three years at this point saying, I believe God is calling me to this. And then all of a sudden, the order at its highest level is saying, we are looking for men to do this. And so it's like the Holy Spirit working from below, but also from above and as they come together. So it's talents, abilities, desires, but also needs and the proper identification and seeing how they come together. Yes? So you mentioned pilgrimages. Are there any pilgrimages in Most difficult or painful yeah. pilgrimage? Okay. Um, well, I'll start with the, the most difficult or painful was the very, very windy road from San Antimo near Montalcino in the heart of Tuscany on the way back to Rome. Uh, every semester for about an hour and a half having young people throw up on the bus. <laughs> Father... 
Father, Father John Baumgartner of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee basically received his vocation while throwing up on me. He was a layman at the time. And uh, it, was, it was really a remarkable moment because usually when I'm next to someone throwing up, I want to throw up. But I was trapped in this seat with him throwing up next to me. And somehow God gave me the grace not to, you know, not to gag. And I, I, at this point, was so well trained on this pilgrimage that I came with multiple plastic bags, strategically placed throughout the bus. And I had seven with me at that moment. And I think I used all seven for poor dear John before we actually got back. So that was probably the most painful pilgrimage. The, the other one was a walking pilgrimage I did from Sushitz to Czestochowa, uh, seven days walking uh, with 80 Polish youth. Nie mówię dobrze po polsku, ale trochu mówię. So um, I, had, I had learned to turn. I had learned to say mass in Polish and the like because of all of them. Okay, so, um, and ja mówim, no, ja mam blaże, which means I have blisters. And then the other was, ja, ja som strasznie zmęczony. I am dead tired. <laughs> Those were the expressions that I learned for that pilgrimage. And so that, that really was quite the experience. Okay, painful, exhausting. But what the beautiful thing of that pilgrimage was is when you're walking and you're walking and you're walking, a number of you have done the Camino, no doubt, um, you're just, you're longing to get to Chestov, and then you see Yasnagura, you see the holy mountain, and you see the, the monastery, and you just, your heart just race, arises, and we were just dirty and sweaty and just ucky, and we walk into that, to that shrine, and there, with all of its glittering gold and, and silver and everything else around the image of Our Lady of Czestochowa, and you just see it and you fall to your knees because you've arrived at your destination. And for me, it was what it was like, this life of pilgrimage, and suddenly you're in heaven and the glory of heaven around you, and then suddenly you forget all of the blisters and all the exhaustion, and you, you've entered into to heaven. And, and there at that shrine, that was very much that experience. In terms of places for you all to go, I have gone on many pilgrimages in Europe uh, with uh, the seminarians and the lay students and the like. Uh, certainly Assisi is always a favorite. But the place that struck me over and over again for the young people with whom I, I went there was Lourdes. That Lourdes holds a very special place, and we're here in this church of Arnie Lourdes. But that was a very special place. Um, and everyone who I ever took to Lourdes always said, this was our favorite. This was our absolute favorite, was Lourdes. Now, I would go in the dead of winter. We would be there usually for Mary, Mother of God, and have midnight mass at the grotto, freezing cold. Midnight mass at the grotto with the local bishop. Um, and then you do the baths in the dead of winter. They're not open as long as they are during the summer, but the lines are very short. But the water is freezing cold, <laughs> absolutely freezing. And I was always told about the miracle of the evaporating water. I was not so fortunate. <laughs> so we go, I go in to, you know, and you're stripping down, and I'd have layers and layers and layers of clothes on because it's freezing outside. I mean, it's a really cold winter. 
and you're in there and you're waiting and you're just in your shorts kind of sitting there in that holding pen with these strangers who you do not know. <laughs> and um, actually that was comforting because I didn't really want to be in there with people I knew. <laughs> and you go in and then this soaking wet towel that has been on like the 10 men before you, this older French gentleman stands up behind you and in, in his very limited French says, drop the shorts. <laughs> you're like, Okay. And before you can even do that, suddenly this towel is, and you're like, oh, okay, it's cold. It was really cold. And then they walk you in, and then they get you in there, and like, we're going to pray. And so we're praying. It was very prayerful. That was great. Um, and then they're like, okay, now what we're going to do is just going to kind of take you back, and you might kind of hold your nose or whatever. I'm like, you're going to take and this water is frigid, and when it hit my back, I lost my breath, and then they put me under, and I'm like, I thought I was gonna drown, and I've come up gagging for air, and, and you know, it, it was baptismal in, in every sense, um, entering into the death of our Lord. And so then they bring in the fresh pitcher of water, and they're like, cup your hands, so I cup my hands, they're like, now drink the water, because Bernadette drank it, so I drank it. Okay, and well, I was the very last one, so he had this huge bucket of water. So he's like, okay. So he took it, he just dumped it on my head. I'm like, it really wasn't necessary. It was this other chill of water that just hit me. And so then I, I kind of go out after this experience, you know, and you takes the towel away, but you gotta put your shorts on. But I mean, soaking wet. So I get out there, I'm sitting there. It is freezing outside. And I'm, I'm sitting there waiting for the miracle of the evaporating water. And I'm like, well, nothing's really happening. So I'm kind of trying to get it off. And I remember that I had all these napkins from McDonald's <laughs> in my overcoat. So I grabbed these napkins and I'm like trying to get the water and I'm doing like this. And then I went to grab some more and then this French gentleman is looking at me. And I'm like, and I'm like, can I just put them back? And I sat there for like 10 minutes until I thought I was dry enough to put all my clothes back on. And so then I'm basically soaking wet underneath all of my clothing and a cassock and a winter coat and a scarf. And I go back out and I get back to the house as quickly as I can to take a warm shower. So, um, but I highly recommend Lourdes. And uh, but that's a great pilgrimage. Anyway, Isaac. Thank you, Father Carolla. Uh, sincerely for myself, on behalf of Father Dan Griffith, our pastor here, our leadership team, uh, thank you so much for making time for us on, on, on your, your trip to the USA. Uh, this does conclude tonight's formal programming. Uh, I would like to thank Father Dan Griffith, our pastor here, for his blessing upon this endeavor. Thank you to Fathers Spencer and Byron and Paul and Bryce. <laughs> for being here as well. Um, and uh, at, at this time, I would like to... Andy. And Father Andy. I had Byron listed twice. So that's, that's, how, that's how highly or lowly I think of you, Father Andy. Seriously, thank you for being here. Um, on that note, uh, there, there is a, a hello and a goodbye in order. First, the goodbye. Uh, Chris Gonza...
our uh, our music our, our director of music here at, at Our Lady of Lords and our director of music here at, at, at Vespers is going to be moving on to bigger and better things. Um, but on behalf of, of, of us here, Chris, thank you so much for your service. Um, yeah, Those of us who uh, go way back know that Vespers started as a rather humble thing, um, and and to this day it, it has become um, a much more uh, beautiful and robust liturgy in particular, and that's in, in large part because of Chris. So thank you, Chris. Um, hello to Father Bryce. Uh, as our new chaplain, I'll, I'll have him come up here and give us our final prayer and blessing, but he'll be taking over a larger role here. He's a friendly face, obviously. He's been here many times and served us well already, um, but he's stepping into a larger role as um, a, uh, associate here at the, at the parish and chaplain to Vespers. So welcome, Father Bryce. <laughs> We will uh, continue next month, Thursday, October 10th at 7.30 p.m. as usual. Um, sign up for our email list on our website, vespersatlures.com, and we also have our event calendar there as well. Finally, thank you for coming, and uh, again, next Vespers is Thursday, October 10th, starting at 7.30 p.m., and at this point, I'll hand it over to Father Price. As we begin this new season of Vespers at Lourdes, let's turn to our our mother, Blessed Mother Mary, whose piece of whose holy name we celebrate today, and ask her to pray for us, pray for this endeavor, that it may be truly consecrated to the glory of God and the salvation and sanctification of souls. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Father Corolla, if you would please bless us. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. In the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Lords, may Almighty God bless you, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.